investors are starting to look at those companies that might have a bit of a lower PE, the companies that are making earnings today and not just potential earnings five years from now. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Fears of rising inflation are throwing equity markets off balance as investors play out the full extent of the reopening trade. With prices ticking up faster than expected, Mark Rays, Chris McKaney, and Alfred Lee deliver context for the rotation into value and industrials and offer key trade ideas to efficiently gain exposure. Our experts also dive into the yield spread between 10 and 30-year treasuries, delivering a thoughtful strategy for the bond side of your portfolios. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more insights, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETFs weekly insight call with our team of experts. I'm your host, Mark Rays, head of product for BMO ETFs. We're joined today by Chris McKinney and Alfred Lee, both are portfolio managers on our ETF desk. Great, let's get started. Looking at factor exposures uh, and using U.S. as a proxy, value stocks continue to be the leader this year with our ZBU outpacing our other U.S. ETFs. When advisors look a little bit under the hood, they're somewhat surprised by the sector exposures as they see the highest weight to tech, which kind of at first glance seems a little counterintuitive, thinking that's more of a growth area of the market. But can you comment on some of the stocks that have been driving this value of performance? What are some of the companies this year that have been pushing the ETF ahead? Sure, and maybe just to recap what that outperformance has been, as you mentioned, ZVU, our value, our U.S. value ETF, um, you know, up about 16% year to date. Um, that's including yesterday's, you know, a little bit of a sell-off over the last couple of days. Um, but compare that to the S&P 500, which in Canadian dollars is about five, five and a half percent. Um, you know, dividends doing pretty well as well at about seven percent. Low vol about 5% as well in quality, just about 3%. So out of those factors, certainly uh, we do see value outperforming significantly. And maybe just a reminder as well about the methodology um, that this ETF uses. We track an MSCI enhanced value index. And essentially the sectors within um, this ETF are going to look relatively similar to what the broad market is. And so if there's technology is a large weight uh, in the broad market, generally it'll have a higher allocation in the value ETF as well. But what the methodology does is look for value-oriented companies within each sector. So, you know, even in a more traditional way, investors used to look at the market as value and growth. You know, you can almost draw a line down the middle of the market and half, half the stocks were value and half were growth. You know, in a similar fashion, that's what the MSCI methodology is doing here, is looking at the value-oriented stocks within each of those sectors. So taking a look at that large technology weight uh, in ZVU, you've got companies like Intel, IBM, Cisco, Applied Materials, and HP, some of the larger companies that are, that are really driving the performance here. 
maybe sort of the old guard uh, of technology or the more traditional tech names that, that people might have thought about several years ago when you, when you think about tech. You know, these are the companies that are making things, right? They're manufacturing significant manufacturing capabilities here. Um, investors might have been reading recently about the global chip shortage that is impacting everything from automobiles to cell phones and, and everything else. Well, by far the largest global manufacturer of, of, of chips is Intel, and it's not really close even. You know, only Samsung is really in the same ballpark. And so some of these companies, IBM as well, have huge manufacturing capabilities and are able to pump out significant um, number of goods on a quarterly basis. So you know, again, IBM, just for reference, you know, 17 billion, 18 billion in revenue just last quarter, two and a half billion in profit. And so, you know, as this sector rotation continues, investors, you know, starting to get a little bit more worried about inflation and higher rates. You know, we've seen that that interest rate move up significantly so far in 2021. Investors are starting to look at those companies that might have a bit of a lower PE, the companies that are making earnings today and not just potential earnings five years from now. And so these are the companies, the ones that are making goods on a on a large scale. Um, that are benefiting from that. So again, companies like Intel that are pumping out a huge number of, of chips. Um, uh, IBM, as I mentioned, applied materials, which makes the materials that go into chip manufacturing. Um, so these are really the companies that have been driving, um, you know, the, the performance of ZVU and of that value factor in general. Um, and again, just a reminder to investors that there are value companies within each sector. There are value companies in that technology sector. Um, and it's not just all about that hyper growth, you know, long-term uh, growth potential. Um, so certainly a, a decent um, allocation, we think, uh, and a decent um, uh, outlook for value continuing, I think, uh, throughout 2021. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And that chip example uh, is a great way to look at this because you do see Intel is the second largest holding in ZDU. And, and of course, that, that trade's working out quite well right now. So, Alfred, I'm going to come your way now. Chris mentioned the steepening yield curve. Uh, when we've been having these conversations, we've been focused more often than not on the 10-year yield, uh, thinking that's in general proxy the bond market. It stopped moving higher of late. However, if we look to the true longer-end bonds, the 30-year yield has been continuing to, to rise, further steepening that, that far end of the yield curve. What's driving this activity and if you take that in the context of a ZAG, our aggregate bond ETF, how is that impacting the bond universe? Thanks. Yeah, so, you know, there's a couple things going on right now. I mean, we've definitely been seeing a divergence between the 30-year and the 10-year in Canada. Uh, but as I mentioned, I think, you know, there's a, a, there's a few things going on. I think the most obvious one is uh, with the 30-year. So uh, the Bank of Canada in the last uh, Bank of Canada meeting, uh, they basically announced that they're going to reduce the size of their Fed bond purchase program from uh, $4 billion a week to $3 billion a week. So you know, that's a pretty meaningful uh, reduction. That's a you know, 25% reduction. Uh, so that's going to have an impact on the yield curve. Uh, so you know, keep in mind when you, know, when you look at something like quantitative easing, uh, the purpose of the QE program is to flatten out the yield curve. So you know, when you look at tapering, which is essentially the opposite thing, uh, it's going to have the impact you know, the opposite impact on the yield curve, which is, uh, you know, higher higher rates across the curve. So, 
you know, most of the impact is going to be on the longer end, uh, just given that, you know, when you look at most QE programs, they see majority of the purchases tend to be on the long end of the curve. Uh, so when you look at the 30-year yield, uh, just looking at it right now, uh, it started moving up in, you know, around April 15th, which was, you know, roughly a week ahead of that Bank of Canada meeting. Um, so the Bank of Canada, you know, the their announcement in terms of reducing their Fed purchase program, you know, I think it was widely anticipated given that, uh, you know, they already announced or indicated that they were going to, um, you know, terminate their other asset purchase program. So most notably, you know, the, bond, the provincial bond purchase program, which ended last week, uh, the corporate bond purchase program, which is expected to end later this month. Uh, but all in all, you know, when you look at uh, the monetary policy in Canada, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's completely telegraphed, but it, you know, from a central bank perspective, it's definitely more transparent than, you know, the U.S. and, and other, you know, central banks around the world. So, you know, on top of the tapering, um, the Bank of Canada also hinted at uh, they're going to increase rate, rates or, you know, potentially have a rate hike uh, potentially in 2022. So that's, you know, well ahead of the uh, consensus of 2023, which was what the market expected. So that's going to have an impact uh, in terms of the yield curve. Uh, the yield curve has essentially been pricing that in. Uh, so we have bond yields basically, you know, pricing in or repricing uh, the tightening of monetary policy ahead of schedule. So that's what's happening on the long end in, in terms of the mid part of the curve. So the 10-year uh, I would say that's more impacted by what's going on in the U.S. So obviously, you know, last week we had uh, the April jobs number being reported out of the U.S., which was, you know, a really dismal number. Uh, the market was anticipating one million jobs being created in April, and the the number that came up was uh, just shy of three hundred thousand. So it was, you know, seven hundred thousand short of expectation. So, you know, at that time of the announcement, U.S. ten-year. Uh, basically dropped uh, close to 10 basis points and recovered throughout the day. Uh, Canadian bonds uh, did follow suit uh, because they are, you know, what happens in the U.S. does have an impact on on Canada. Um, so I would say all in all, I would say, you know, in the 10-year, uh, you know, the there was an impact due to tapering, but it was essentially washed out by that uh, bad job, you know, that bad job number in the U.S. So in terms of the impact on ZAG, uh, you know, the impact is going to be minimal. I looked at it this morning, um, you know, the performance from April 15th, which was when 30-year, you know, the 30-year bond yield started going up. Uh, ZAG was down only 78 basis points. You know, keep in mind, uh, ZAG, you know, the, the majority of the bonds held in ZAG, two-thirds of it is, you know, less than 10 years. It's only one-third of the portfolio, which has, you know, maturity of 10 years or longer. Um, so, you know, when I look at the performance of short and mid-term bonds, a little bit up. Uh, it's only the long-term bonds that have that have been down. And, and keep in mind, you know, with the long bonds, there is exposure to provincial bonds, uh, corporate bonds, which is going to be, you know, that that corporate exposure, which you know, credit spreads have been tightening over the last couple of weeks. That's going to to mitigate a lot of that duration impact. So, you know, all along we've been saying Zag is a good core to a portfolio. We we still stand by that. Uh, you know, anything within that, you know, what we call the three by three matrix. You know, no matter whether interest rates are going up or down, the credit spreads are tight or widening, there's always something within that three-by-three three matrix that is, is doing well. So, you know, we, we would certainly complement Zag with things like, you know, ZTIP or, or ZPR, which is our preferred share ETF. We've been talking about overweighting, you know, Canadian credit, specifically triple B. But, you know, overall, I would still say Zag makes a, 
a good anchor to a fixed income portfolio. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to tune into our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite. Check out episode 69 in this same podcast series where we take a deeper look at fixed income and equity solutions to hedge against inflation, from U.S. tips and real return bonds to base metals and oil. I want to move back to the equity side. Canadian industrials have been in the news of late and catching advisor interest. Of course, lots of news around railroads with competing merger proposals on Kansas City Southern. Can you comment on your outlook for the rails and also for the broader equal weight ZIN industrials ETF? Thanks. Sure. So, you know, definitely a lot of action in the uh, rail space over the last uh, couple of months. So, you know, uh, just to give a quick recap, uh, there's been competing bids from CP Rail and CN Rail to acquire uh, Kansas City Southern. Um, so uh, KC Southern did uh, accept an offer, a cash and share acquisition deal from CP Rail, which was worth uh, roughly about $29 billion. Uh, CN Rail then offered a competing cash and stock deal as well, which was worth um, around $33.7 billion. So, you know, the board at Kansas City Southern said you know, they would talk to CN even though they had previously accepted uh, CP's bid. So, you know, whoever wins this bid is going to own a lot of the rail space in, in North America. So that's going to be, um, you know, a, a huge positive for, again, whoever wins that bid. Uh, in terms of, you know, railways, I would say they're very well positioned at this point. Uh, when you look at railways, you know, it's a, usually a good indicator in terms of, you know, economic activity, given that they do uh, handle a lot of the shipments of, of goods across, you know, the continent. Um, so in terms of, you know, the, the rail space specifically, I, I, I think it's one of those areas that are leveraged towards the economic reopening trade, uh, but a bit, but they, you know, the space has been under-recognized over the last couple of months. Um, I think as the economy reopens, uh, demand for goods is going to pick up. Uh, so that's going to put, you know, the transportation of goods more in demand. Uh, you know, personally, I think CP tends to be a little bit better positioned given that, uh, has more exposure to the western part of Canada. So, you know, with stock price has always been tended to be a little bit more tied to commodities. So as commodity prices have been, you know, on the rise over the last uh, couple of months, uh, CP has been has benefited more, uh, not to mention that CP tends to be known to be, you know, more operationally efficient than, than CN as well. Uh, CN tends to be a little bit more of a steady eddy, um, but it does own uh, rail space in Mexico. So, you know, if it does win the bid uh, with KC Southern, it, it's going to own a lot of the rail space across the continent. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of the rail space, you know, one way I would play the economic reopening trade is through uh, ZIN, which is the Equal Weight Industrials ETF. I think it's just more of a diversified way of playing that reopening trade. So in addition to, you know, the rails you're getting, you know, airlines or so cargo jet, which is a very similar play to the rail space. Uh, but you're also getting Air Canada as well, which, you know, as uh, the economy starts to reopen, there's going to be a lot more uh, demand for air travel as well. Uh, but in addition to that, you're getting, you know, a lot of infrastructure-related names as well. So you know, they're going to benefit off the U.S. infrastructure spend, so names like Acon, S&C-Lavalin, uh, a lot of the, you know, cat distributors and, and rental companies such as Finning and Toramont. Uh, but on top of that, you're getting utility-like names as well. So, you know, Waste Connection, Brookfield Properties, tend to be a little bit more stable. So 
overall, I think, you know, ZIN tends to be a, a very good looking portfolio. It's, it's very well positioned, you know, given where we are uh, in the economic cycle. But, you know, the fact that it's equally weighted, I, I like as well, uh, just because, you know, anytime you're looking at any sectors outside of finance and arguably energy in Canada, you know, those sectors tend to be dominated by, you know, the, the largest two or three names. So equal weighting is a good way to, to get that exposure uh, but at the same time, minimize that company-specific risk as well. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. And certainly, ZIN, another good way to play the reopening trade. We haven't talked about that ETF as much, but certainly since around the beginning of November, some really outstanding performance on that ETF as well. So one more question for me. Um, as an income-focused equity diversifier, Advisors have been asking us about ZPay, particularly when markets start to get a little more volatile. Can you remind us of your approach on this ETF? Give us an update on portfolio positioning. Um, but as well, really comment, have you been moving the equity weight around uh, with, with changing market dynamics? Thanks. Thanks, Mark. And certainly a lot of interest in this ETF. Recently, we've seen a lot of flows as volatility does start to pick up in the market and, um, you know, advisors and investors are looking at, you know, which direction the market's going to be going here. Um, And maybe, as you say, just a reminder of how we approach this ETF, how we uh, manage this portfolio. The bulk of the portfolio uh, is invested in U.S. T-bills, and we use those T-bills as collateral to sell put options on individual stocks. So what we're doing here is collecting an income stream, uh, a premium uh, for selling those put options on those individual stocks. And we're selling puts on stocks like high quality companies like Apple, Microsoft. You know, we talked about Intel already a little bit, um, but also, you know, MasterCard, Visa, Pfizer and, and Amgen, just to give you an example of some of the companies in this portfolio. And so, again, primarily what we're doing is just collecting uh, an income stream, a cash flow from selling these these put options. And if those stocks go down in value and go through the strikes of our put options, then we uh, those puts are assigned and we will own those stocks. So a portion of the portfolio is invested directly in equities. Um, and a portion is invested again in T-bills um, that allow us to sell those put options. Now on the other side, once we own those stocks, we'll also sell a call option on that stock as well. And that creates an exit point so in the way that the put option creates an entry point into a stock position, the call option will create an exit point where, again, we're collecting another premium. And if the stock rallies through the strike price on the call side, then we'll sell that, that stock away. And so naturally, you do see the allocation to direct equities in this portfolio move around with market movements. Um, obviously, last year in March and April, during the market sell-off, the equity weight went up very, very high, actually. Um, it was actually up over 70%, which is probably the highest, um, you, you know, you'll see that given the, the, the strength of the market moved down and the, the speed at which it moved down as well. But over the summer, as the market rallied, you know, that, that equity weight trended downwards, again, as those call options start to get called away and, and those stocks get sold away. Um, we that's been trending down throughout most of 2020. And we entered this year with just about 30% um, equities in our portfolio. That big rally we saw in April took out even some of those equities. And so we're now down to uh, a 20% equity weight 
in the portfolio, which looks like a, a very nice conservative number given the volatility that we're starting to see pick up again here um, in May. And so if equity markets start to move down again, um, you know, having only 20% invested directly in equities will have a nice cushion there um, on the way down. And again, if the market moves down uh, enough, that equity weight will start to tick up again. So what we're trying to do here is buy low or buy lower as the market moves down. And then if the market rallies again, we'll sell high. So that buy low, sell high um, sort of mentality is actually part of the structure of how we manage this portfolio. And for the most part, what you're doing again is collecting that premium. It's a nice high level of cash flow uh, with generally pretty low volatility, certainly relative to, to equity markets. Um, and of course, the other benefit to that is that through call options and put options, those, those premiums are taxed as capital gains. So it's a very tax efficient uh, form of, of cash flow as well. And so we think, you know, again, we've seen a lot of interest in this fund recently. We've seen a lot of flows into it. Um, and we do think it makes a lot of sense for investors that, um, you know, want to have some growth potential. They want to have, you know, sort of one foot at least in the, uh, into the market, but aren't too sure about valuations, aren't too sure about how much volatility there's going to be going forward. This strategy is a way to actually take advantage of that volatility. And if there is volatility, again, that buy low, sell high mentality is, is reinforced within this portfolio. Um, the only other thing I might mention, and it's you know something that a lot of investors have been talking about recently as well, is that um, this portfolio, the, the main units, the ZPay, ZPAY ticker, is unhedged. So there is US dollar exposure in here. Um, so if you're just looking at that ticker, remember there is US dollar exposure in there, which obviously has moved quite a bit over the last year or so. Um, but for investors that want different options, we also offer the .f or the .f or slash f as a hedge to CAD version. And we also have a .u, which is a US dollar traded version as well. So for investors that have US dollars and want that US dollar cash flow, we have a few different options as to how to invest in this strategy. Great, thanks for that, Chris. At this point, we would like to check if there are any questions on the line. Hi, uh, thanks for this information that you shared this morning. Uh, looks like um, volatility is uh, picking up again. I would love to know your thoughts on the broad market and on a sector basis, thank you. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, kind of just picking up on, on what we were talking about with the premium yields, um, you know, certainly throughout 2020, volatility was sustained at a, at a fairly high level. Uh, you know, the broad market indication of, of volatility or expected volatility is the VIX index. Um, and that was persistently above 20 um, throughout 2020. And that, you know, a reading above 20 generally is an is a indication that volatility is at least somewhat elevated. Um, interestingly enough, just here again in, in late March and then throughout April, as we saw a strong rally in the, in the markets in April, um, was really the first time since the market sell off last March that, that the VIX did indeed go below 20. And it looked like it might actually stay there for a while, um, kind of sitting in the mid-teens for most of April. Um, and now here we are again in May and it's, it's picking back up over the last couple of days and it looks like it's continuing to rise now. Um, at about a 23 level and moving up towards 25 potentially. And so, um, you know, we've been telling investors that we think volatility will persist in the equity markets for some time, um, simply because, uh, you know, this reopening 
sort of environment that we're in is is largely an, an unknown, right? This hasn't happened in over a hundred years, and so in modern uh, in the modern economy, this has really never happened. Um, and so, which way different sectors are going to move, and which way the overall economy and stock market is going to move, is, is still largely an unknown. And so that argues for for higher volatility, or at least expected volatility. And so, you know, we think it, it does make a lot of sense to utilize strategies like ZPay that sell that volatility. Essentially, we're monetizing some of that higher volatility. Um, and of course, our other strategies, our other option-oriented strategies that we're, we're very well known for, our covered calls, um, we think make a lot of sense in this environment as well. As volatility is higher, generally you can make a higher level of premium for selling those options, whether, there's, whether they're puts or calls. And as well as the market kind of trends sideways or looks for a direction, um, both the premium yield and covered calls make a lot of sense from a total return perspective as well. You know, that sideways market really is ideal for a covered call strategy. And so I would suggest take a look at which underlying um, geography you might want, whether that's, um, you know, a dividend-oriented portfolio, Canada, U.S., Europe, uh, or even globally. Or if, if there is a sector you're looking at, you know, we think, um, you know, going forward, uh, financials are still going to continue to perform well as, um, you know, as Alfred and Mark were talking about earlier, that yield curve continuing to steepen should help financials. And so a cover called banks, whether that's Canada or U.S., uh, we think makes a lot of sense as well. Good morning. We continue to hear more about inflation. Can you please give us some thoughts on both the equity and fixed income side for positioning? Thank you. Uh, sure, I could, I could take that one. I mean, you're, you're definitely right. We're, we're hearing more and more about inflation over the last couple of months, but you know, we're finally starting to see um, some evidence of inflation. Um, so if you look at CPI, both in Canada and the U.S., uh, Canada, the last reading was above 2%. Uh, we got another C- CPI reading out of the U.S. this morning, which came in at, you know, 4.2%. Um, you know, what was kind of more alarming to us uh, last month was the PPI number. Uh, so that's the producer price index, um, which came in at 5.9%, uh, which is high. Um, you know, some of this has you know, definitely been due to what's been known as the base effect. Um, but, you know, what, what was, you know, PPI tends to be a leading indicator uh, just because, you know, input costs have been rising. Uh, but given, you know, the, the lockdowns, um, essentially a lot of these producers couldn't push a lot of those higher costs to the end consumer. But now as the economy reopens, I think what's going to happen is that those, you know, higher input costs are going to be uh, going to get start to pass on to the end consumer. So you're going to start to see that reflecting in, in the CPI numbers, which we saw this morning. Uh, so in terms of trade ideas, um, you know, I'll quickly cover, you know, um, some ideas in the equity and, and fixed income. Uh, we did do a deep dive podcast um, a couple of weeks ago, which does cover everything more uh, in depth. Uh, but in terms of equities, I, I think you know base metals are well positioned. You know they're real assets that uh, tend to do well in inflationary environments. Uh, gold uh, stocks tend to uh, typically do well in inflationary environments as well. Uh, personally, I like base metals more just because it's more of a pure play. Uh, when you look at gold, uh, gold tends to be a hedge against you know personally. Too many things, in, in my opinion, uh, such as a weak U.S. dollar, higher inflation, macroeconomic risk as well. So base metal tends to be, as I mentioned, more of a pure play. Uh, REITs tend to do well in an inflationary environment as well, especially those REITs that own the real estate, uh, just because, again, you know, hard assets tend to perform well 
in an inflationary environment. Uh, ZEO, which is our equal weight oil and uh, gas ETFs, um, you know, commodities tend to do well in inflationary environments. Uh, on top of that, uh, with oil prices, as the economy opens up, um, I think there's going to be a lot more demand for oil in general as, you know, travel starts to pick up, not only due to the reopening, but due to the summer months as well. Uh, on the fixed income side, you know, some of the ideas that we've been highlighting is uh, ZTIP, which is our short-term uh, U.S. TIPS ETF. Personally, I would hedge it uh, just to wash out that currency effect. And ZPR, which is our uh, preferred share ETF, uh, that's a good way to hedge your portfolio against a rising uh, rate environment as well. So, you know, we did a good recap, uh, just to reiterate, uh, on that Deep Dive podcast. So, you know, we encourage you to check that out. Always appreciate the insight. Thank you so much. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Really appreciate you listening in. Thanks, of course, to both Chris and Alfred. Some great insights, some great points we can bring back to our own conversations over the rest of the week. With that, just want to wish everyone a great day. And thank you once again for joining. Thank you to Mark Reyes, Alfred Lee, and Chris McKaney for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard some unconventional approaches to altogether traditional areas, such as ZVU, a value ETF with roughly the same sector diversification as the index, but which strays from the benchmark on individual security selection. Or ZIN, an industrials ETF with equal weight exposure to Canada's biggest manufacturers, utilities, and railway operators. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.